Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guests are Melanie Mitchell and Jessica Flack. Melanie is Professor of Computer Science at Portland State University and external professor and co-chair of the Science Board at the Santa Fe Institute. Melanie has also held positions at the University of Michigan, Los Alamos National Lab, and the OGI School of Science and Engineering. She's the author or editor of seven books and numerous scholarly papers in the fields of artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and complex systems, including her latest, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. Jessica is a professor at the Santa Fe Institute. There she directs Santa Fe Institute's Collective Computation Group, also known as C4. Uh, Jessica was formerly a founding director of the Center for Complexity and Collective Computation at the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery at the University of Wisconsin. And she was a graduate student at Embry University and was associated with the famous Yerkes National Primate Research Center. She's been my go-to person for questions about primates and monkeys. And I guess monkeys are primates, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, so both of them are returning guests. Melanie was on EP33, uh, where we talked about her book, Artificial Intelligence. Uh, and Jessica has been on twice, uh, once where we talked about complex systems dynamics. And she did a COVID extra where we talked about what opportunities do COVID-19 and the changes that it uh, will cause in our society open up. So it's great to have you both back. Oh, good to be back. Yeah, it's great to be with Jim. Thank you for having us. Yeah, today uh, we're doing a Currents episode, which are our shorter forms and less uh, highly structured. And essentially, what we're going to start is our talk, our starting point, a uh, very interesting essay, which caught my eye uh, when it was published, uh, I don't know, a month or so ago, uh, called Uncertain Times, published on the Aeon website. That's A-E-O-N dot C-O. If you Google it, Uncertain Times, Flack and Mitchell, or Aeon dot C-O, Uncertain Times, you'll find it. Uh, it's really quite good. It's a uh, call it a, a practical guide to how to think in terms of complexity about the problems of our society. And I, I would strongly uh, uh, recommend that people actually go and read the article. Uh, it'll be it's well worth your time. So let's start off with the uh, opening paragraph or so from the paper, and then or the essay, and then get you guys thoughts on that. Uh, you start off by saying we're at a unique moment in the 200,000 years or so that Homo sapiens have walked the earth. For the first time in that long history, humans are capable of coordinating on a global scale using fine-grained data on individual behavior to design robust and adaptable social systems. The pandemic of 2019-20 has brought home this potential. Potential, that's a good word. Never before has there been a collective, empirically informed response of the magnitude that COVID-19 has demanded. Yes, the response has been ambivalent, uneven, and chaotic. We are fumbling in low light, but it's the low light of dawn. So what do you see that's hopeful in humanity's response to COVID-19? Um, I think for me, the thing that, that stands out and I keep returning to is this observation or this convergence and the convergence is um, incredible microscopic data, you know, actually at, at all levels of organization and science, molecular, all the way up to, to human societies that, that we just have not had before, coupled to the development of machine learning and AI and really great pattern detection, at least, um, and the flourishing science of micro to macro that's been coming out of the Santa Fe Institute and other places. And it's the sort of convergence of these three factors, plus the fact that we can communicate, you know, over vast scales of light speed now because of the internet, that have made the possibility or have given us the capacity to design empirically informed, you know, responses to perturbations like COVID over global scales. Now, I say capacity, and that's a very important word because as a number of people have pointed out to me in response to the essay, 
we, we're, we're still not very good at this, but the pieces are all there for us to put together. And I think it's the first time in history that we've had this capacity. And so for me, it's extremely exciting. And I want to see, I want to see us move in the right set of directions. Melanie, your thoughts on, on this? Well, I agree with Jess, of course. I think that in a way, this whole pandemic and the response to it has kind of hit home for a lot of people and realize, made people realize that complex systems are really important to understand, made us realize how complex a world we're living in and how little prepared we are to make predictions and to sort of do the optimal thing at all times. And that's really a lesson of complex systems in general. So I think this is something, it's kind of a change of a mindset as much as a change in our capabilities to do the kind of science we need to understand and uh, make the kinds of decisions that we need to make in these uncertain times, as the title of our article says. Indeed. Uh, you guys talk about the fact that kind of the default human mind is uh, fairly linear, simple cause and effect reasoning. And that kind of reasoning will get you into trouble when you're dealing with complex systems. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about how some of the uh, manifestations of COVID, since it's an example uh, we're all still familiar with, uh, exhibited what we might think of uh, nonlinear or non-simple cause and effect uh, relationships. One of the best examples of that is it's still going on, but it was particularly problematic early on, say, you know, March when we were, had early, we were in early days of COVID modeling. And the models would, you know, would make predictions about the number of deaths or so forth by week X. And then that number would either not be met. And, you know, what are the reasons for that? Well, one reason is that the model isn't very good or the information, the input into the model isn't very good. That's another reason. And a third reason is that our, our interventions change the outcomes. And that is, you know, that's about feedback. And that point, even though, you know, in saying it in this conversation makes it seem so obvious, it was, is very easily forgotten. And I think that's an example of how our minds default to like linear reasoning, we forget to factor in these feedbacks. Yeah, let me add one thing to that. Um, I think one really good example of the effects of linear thinking is this, uh, thing that people talk about in, in terms of how infective a virus is, and that's that R naught, which is the number of people you're likely to infect if you yourself are infected. And so people think about R naught and they talk about R naught across a country or across a state or across, you know, some region. But R naught, of course, is an average which is a very linear kind of quantity. You know, you add up all the parts and you get an average. Uh, but it turns out that infectivity is really very much more clustered, that we have these super spreaders who will infect a huge number of people, and whereas most of people are not infecting anyone at all. And so it's not a real kind of linear system in which you can talk about these averages in any meaningful way. And I think a lot of people got misled by focusing on these averages like R naught in terms of making models. And that's one reason why models didn't really reflect reality. Yeah, that's a wonderful example because I, uh, I, I did pick that up actually from the data that, wait a minute here, it's not as if we're all clustered around some R naught mean, right? It's as you say, there's a few people that are spreading to 25 or 50 people, while lots of people spread to zero or, or at most one, often a person in their household. And if you model it, assuming it's all clustered around R naught, you'll get a very different uh, configuration of spread than if you assume that it's uh, uh, a relatively small number of super spreaders. So a really good, uh, a really good point. Uh, let's see, another uh, topic you guys talk about uh, and, and how a complexity perspective of thinking helps one uh, deal with uh, solutions in a non-obvious way is you talk about how uh, uh, basically noise, uh, oddly enough, can actually help organization. You give a very interesting example about uh, schooling of fish. Maybe talk about that example a little bit. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think the, um, you know, it's sort of well known in the theory literature that noise has surprising effects. But for most of us, we think noise is something to be eliminated. You know, we, we want to maximize the signal, minimize the noise. 
and that's you know understandable. But um, this, what the fish study in particular, it's a type of cichlid fish. These researchers found that um, the fish copy each other to decide sort of which direction to move in, and the the copying behavior is often thought to be the driver of these collective states like schooling. But in the case of these fish, actually small um, noise in their copying behavior feeds back on itself. And when it happens with a big enough effect, it actually induces a transition to schooling to an ordered state. So the noise in the copying behavior is really important for producing this um, organized collective state. And I think that was that's very surprising to a lot of people. And of course, there are other examples. So, so the sort of canonical example of of the importance of noise comes from, you know, stochastic resonance, which is a phenomenon where a signal that is sort of normally too weak to be detected by, say, a sensor or an agent in the system is boosted by adding white noise to the system, to the signal. And um, there are also, so that I guess the point is there are all sorts of ways that noise, what all sorts of ways that noise plays a role in gener generating the sort of collective states we see. And sometimes those states are, are good and sometimes they're not. But we want to be aware of that. And um, what one, you know, one example in the COVID case where I think it's important to be aware of these things is say in the, in the, in the, um, the enthusiasm for contact tracing apps, you know, where you, you trace the number of the contacts that an, an infected individual had. And th the thinking there is that you can, by, by knowing where the infected individuals are and avoiding them that, you know, will, will be safer. And, the, and when you couple the sort of noise point to general understanding of synchronization and collective behavior, you know that you need to be wary of that conclusion because often surprising collective states can be generated. So we might actually end up in a situation with those contact tracing apps where we, where we are putting more infected or asymptomatic people next to each other than we thought we were going to be doing. Right? So you get these counterintuitive results. And only with thinking about noise and complex systems and synchronization do you realize that this is a pro that this is a potential concern. Yeah, this is one of the things that I personally found most fascinating about biology versus sort of human engineering is how much kind of nature has sort of decided that noise is unavoidable. Noise, I think of as synonymous with kind of randomness, and it's just something that cannot be engineered out. And so instead, what evolution, biological evolution at least, has seemed to do is to embrace randomness as a way to deal with uncertainty. That these systems, as Jessica pointed out, for instance, with this fish schooling, all of these biological systems are, are just embedded. They're just noise is ubiquitous. And they, they embrace it and they use it because the environment is so uncertain. And that just contrasts with our normal thinking about how to engineer behavior, or how to engineer control is to kind of get rid of all the noise as much as possible and try and make our predictions as precise as possible. But that's not the way nature does it. And it seems like in our complex world, that's not the way we should do it either. Interesting. And there's another good example about noise. In fact, it was involved with the research I was involved with when I was a researcher at the Santa Fe Institute with uh, Doan Farmers Group, which is, uh, surprisingly enough, you can think of stock markets as having a significant amount of noise in them. Uh, and it turns out that the noise is what allows the system to function the way it functions. Uh, and in our case, we define noise traders as people who had some specific reason to buy or sell for reasons that had nothing to do with the market. Say so they needed to sell some stock to pay for their kids' uh, uh, college education, or they uh, were buying a long-term position for their uh, retirement account, and they believed in the buy and forget uh, uh, strategy. And so they bought and sold for reasons not particularly determined by the current action in the market. Uh, while many of the, the biggest market participants are essentially strategic investors on various time frames, and we'll talk about varying time frames here in a minute. And if you don't have uh, noise investors to essentially dampen the system, the system can get out of control in a, in a hurry as the uh, strategies uh, interoperate with each other in ways that are very, very, very hard to predict. And so you would actually have considerably less stable financial markets if there weren't noise traders. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. Well, actually, and a sort of a, a compliment to that, Jim, is 
is the idea that in March, with all that volatility in the stock market, the market was much more became more inefficient than it had been, and hence um, offered um, potential an edge to in savvy traders, long term investors, and the and the reason for this that's been proposed, and I don't think it's well studied yet, but it's I've seen it proposed in a variety of sources, is that um, essentially speculators, more speculators entered the market, so these are also kind of noise traders, um, and they were coming from you know the Reddit community and from um, the Robinhood, you know, app that enabled sort of the everyday person to trade more easily with, with zero fees. And also from the sports bettors who had nothing to do, no sports to bet on. So these three sort of communities entered the markets and introduced potentially, because they were making possibly poor decisions or were motivated by other reasons, a lot of inefficiency to the markets. So then so noise there, not only, as in your example, sort of dampens um, things or keeps things under control by balancing out strategies, but can also create opportunities for others to exploit. Exactly. And that's the cool thing about stock markets. You can actually think about them as food sources, right? A dumb investor is a food source to a smart investor. Uh, however, a smart investor, when he uh, takes advantage of the uh, called statistical arbitrage, is actually polluting his own environment so that the amount of food uh, that's available goes down. It's actually very, very interesting. And the noise, uh, the noise trader are, is a very important part of the ecosystem. And you're right, you get enough noise traders in uh, and it can uh, indeed produce uh, you know, changes in the underlying name of the game. And I, I love that fact that you guys uh, quoted in your article that the, this theory that it, well, part of it was uh, sports bettors with nothing better to do. <laughs> Definitely possible. Again, actually, that's a very interesting uh, uh, thing. Example of what we'll talk about a little bit later is the coupling of systems. You know, who would have thought that because there was a virus running around loose, sports bettors would jump into the stock market and change some of the fundamental dynamics of the marketplace? Talk about a peculiar linkage that uh, would have been pretty hard to anticipate in advance. Yes, a nice example of a second-order effect, or maybe even a third-order. At least second. I would say maybe easily, easily third, right? Uh, now let's talk about another one of our uh, favorite topics at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, which is... Uh, complex systems seem to be especially vulnerable to events that don't follow normal or bell curve type distributions, what we call fat tail distributions. We can argue endlessly about whether they're power laws or just approximately so, it doesn't really matter. What it means is that uh, large scale outcomes can happen more often than you know, the equivalent of calculating uh, the results from flipping coins, you know, how many, what's the probability of five uh, heads in a row, et cetera. Could you all talk a little bit about that, about how uh, how the complex systems seem to have a special uh, affinity, shall we say, for fat tail distributions and what that means about uh, about planning? Well, the example I gave earlier about the R naught, that's an example of a fat tail distribution. If you ask, you know, who who is spreading the virus? And most people who have the virus are not spreading it but a small number of people who have it are spreading it to a huge number of other people. So, you know, we might call those people sort of hubs in the network of spreaders. And this gives rise, if you kind of plot the frequency of spreading, you know, how many people uh, you spread it to, uh, you, can, you get this kind of fat tail distribution. Uh, so so this, is, this is a very, this is kind of a signature of a complex network of, of interactions. Um, and I think that it affects the kinds of models you want to use to predict what's going to happen and to understand what's the dynamics of the system. Yeah. I mean, I might add to that, that one of the reasons I find them so interesting, these heavy tail distributions is because um, in certain cases, in some systems, when you get these rare events, which are hard to predict, you know, in the heavy tail distribution, then you get sort of second order events in the tail generated by those first. So earthquake gyration, you know, aftershocks are an example. And then the, the subsequent gyrations in the stock market after a crash are, are other examples. And what happens in, we think in the case maybe of markets is that the rules that you were playing by 
once there's a really precipitous drop, change again. And those, when the rules change the second time, that makes even these these um, even even lower probability events more likely. And so, what is initially almost impossible to calculate as as a, as a, you know or forecast um, now you know becomes more more likely. And what that says to me that's that in and of itself is fascinating to think about. But what it says to me is that we want to move a little bit away from forecasting and more towards scenario planning. That's an old idea. It's been around a long time, but really important in complex systems where, you know, you, you consider both using the past and your imagination, you know, principled imagination, what possible scenarios could unfold. And you don't spend so much time trying to assign probabilities to them because the probabilities are probably really low. And then you just, you hopefully can design some general mechanisms or general solutions that will work over a variety of those low probability scenarios. Yeah, exactly. What I recommend uh, to people trying to do that kind of planning is to you know, create models, create various models, and then generate a large ensemble of trajectories. And as you say, don't try to get too smart about picking which trajectories are likely or which ones aren't, but look at the aggregate statistics over the ensemble. Uh, and that will often show you that these uh, fat-tailed distributions are uh, likely to be more common than you think. Yeah. Yeah, there's a great, um, uh, so my my main field is artificial intelligence rather than, you know, like epidemiology or, or, or uh, any of the things that we've been talking about. But there's a great uh, kind of analogy in the field of artificial intelligence, which is that Right now, when, when we're talking about sort of deploying these AI systems, like for instance, self-driving cars, what people try and do is they try and plan for every possible thing that might happen by either writing rules or trying to learn uh, from data. And so, you know, you can have all these really unlikely situations that might happen in driving. Like you might have, you know, you know, like a, like a fire truck stopped in the middle of the highway. Okay, or, uh, you know, you're on a road and uh, there's a tumbleweed that crashes into your windshield or, you know, all these different unlikely things. But the, the, the way that we humans actually drive is we don't plan for all these individual events. We plan, we have a more of a general kind of common, what we call common sense uh, approach where we take each each, we, we kind of have a general strategy for dealing with lots of different low probability systems. And I think that's kind of what the goal of this emergent engineering um, uh, idea really is, is to not try and precisely predict everything that's going to happen, because that's impossible, but to have strategies that will be adaptable and workable across many different situations. Yeah. To build on Melanie there, I mean, emergent engineering stresses sort of a known story, process over specific outcomes, designing for robustness and adaptability, finding solutions to unanticipated challenges through collective computation, what I work on, or collective intelligence, very closely related. And I want to hammer home before I sort of say a little bit about the sort of three levels of emergent engineering, as, I, as I've been thinking about it, um, an important point, and that is that Emergent engineering in its sort of strong form is quite provocative. In a truly EE-capable system, there's no, I would say, like I would argue this, there's no commitment to any particular outcome. And that could be quite frightening to people. So the objective would be to let good solutions, be they policies or social structures, or organizational design, to the challenges that a system faces emerge through, say, collective intelligence. And this is a fundamentally different strategy and philosophy than we embrace now. A somewhat weaker version would be to build an EE-capable system but constrain them so that they respect certain principles or values we collectively deem important. So while not guaranteeing, for example, a form of governance, we might, um, which we might let emerge as appropriate given some environmental challenge, we would guarantee a high minimum quality of life. That would be like a weaker form than, the, than I started with. And then the weakest form, but still non-trivial to design, and which draws heavily from ideas in biology, as, as Melanie mentioned earlier, is, is the idea, you know, again, we, we find designs that stress process over outcome, robustness and adaptability, scenario planning. It, but it, I would say the, one of the biggest pushes in the weakest form is that 
It proposes building tuning mechanisms into systems that control how fluid and responsive a system is. So you add levers that allow for adjustment. I know we're going to get to this gym of timescales to control timescale separation and adjustment of, say, mechanisms that allow you to tune the distance from a tipping point. That's kind of a novel concept. Some of this may sound familiar. These ideas have been long discussed at SFI. And, you know, we have some progress on levers already implemented in applied settings like markets or financial systems, Fed adjustment of interest rates, a circuit breaker, and so, and so forth. Um, but the idea that that's sort of different is that we can optimize for robustness and adaptability by tuning timescale separation or distance from a critical point doesn't have many design precedents. That's really a new design idea. Yeah, it really is. And I'll just make it, I'll make it a little bit more concrete by returning to the fish school and then let's, then let's talk about it. And so um, some fish do school and by schooling, I mean, they form, they form, um, they swim, they're all aligned and they can move fast to escape a predator, right? That's essentially what schooling is. And uh, most of the time, these fish at school are, are in what's called a shoal. And in a shoal, shoaling state, they're loosely aligned. And they're sort of aligned just enough so that if one of the fish sees a predator, that information can spread across the group and they can rapidly shift into the schooling state. So the shoaling state, in the shoaling state, they're essentially sitting at a critical point. This is still under investigation in the biological literature, but you know we'll simplify a little bit this conversation. So they're essentially sitting at near a critical point. By sitting near that critical point, they can make this rapid change. Uh, and notice one thing about this already. So, you know, this is obviously beneficial for the fish to be able to do this. And often in the popular literature, tipping points and critical points are, pre are presented negatively. So that's something just to keep in mind for future discussion. So just a couple things to keep in note about, keep in mind about this example. The fish have two states or two scenarios rather to come back to our scenario planning the predator scenario and the foraging scenario. They have strategies for both shoaling while foraging and schooling when the predator's around, right? The critical point, the level of alignment to simplify essentially allows them to shift states fast. And there's uncertainty in the system because they don't know when that predator is going to appear, but they do know what to do when it does. So that comes back to our earlier points about scenario planning when you might not be able to predict the probability of some event, but you know that if it happens, this is a good strategy for dealing with it. And of course, the last thing I want to point out is that there's a robustness trade-off. So if the fish incorrectly, if one of the fish incorrectly detects a predator, then they, then that might he might that fish might transmit this information to, to the rest of the fish and they might inappropriately change state, which has a cost because you know they should be foraging and instead they're switching to schooling. So tuning how sensitive the system is, how sensitive the fish are to the likely presence of a predator would be an extremely beneficial strategy. We're not sure the fish can do it. We do have evidence from some, a primate system and some other areas of biology that these tuning mechanisms exist, this, but this is kind of new. It's something we could exploit in designing EE-capable systems. Very good. Uh, when, I, when I was reading about the tipping points, uh, I had a thought, which I'm, I'm just going to run by you, which it might be useful to distinguish between uh, re easily reversible tipping points, like switching in and out of schooling, and uh, tipping points of the sort that you alluded to in uh, climate discussions. Uh, you know, people listen to the, my show uh, regularly know I often talk about the distinction between uh, homeostasis and hysteresis, you know, systems that uh, can return to their previous points and those that don't. And uh, putting both of those in the same bag may indeed be misleading. I know you were trying to kind of wave people off. Don't think about the climate tipping point when we're, when we're thinking about switchable tipping points. So maybe some new terminology so that uh, tipping points that are easily reversible uh, are distinguished from those that aren't. Yeah, so that's absolutely an active body of research and a totally critical point, Jim, you're right. Um, I want to I want to emphasize, though, that so so in the fish case, it, there's still different states. It's just that in the, the examples you're giving, we're going from an organized to a disorganized state. And in the fish case, we're going from kind of the loosely lined to a more organized state. So you know, these are all active areas of investigation. But even in the case where you're going to the disorganized state, it is not, we should not place a judgment on that a priori. Sometimes if the, the, the distribution of the environment, environmental states are fundamentally, if it's fundamentally changing, then we, then the strategies that we have at present will be fit or overfit to the past to, and right. And they're not, they're very unlikely to work under this new distribution, this new environment. And so in that case, we may actually want to um, 
be in a, be in a system where the tipping point is not, so to speak, reversible, and where we're we move to for a short period of time, at least a disordered state, so that we can explore new scenario, new solutions. Frankly, that's my view of what's needed in our social, economic, political operating system. Uh, you know, these things were not designed to operate in a uh, world of hard limits that we're approaching very rapidly. And so it strikes me we have to, uh, you know, set off into the unknown and uh, make some transition through probably disorder till we find what's on the other side. So a very good point. There are times when we actually do want one-way tipping points, and sometimes you may not survive if we don't find them. And that's exactly the sort of goal of emergent engineering in a way, but maybe to do it in a, um, you know, in a, a somewhat safer, <laughs> with a somewhat safe, with some safety mechanisms to design, you know, e-capable systems. That's the sort of second form I mentioned, not the strong form where you, you're free to explore any um, new outcomes, but this weaker form where you might build some constraints uh, of the state space that the system can explore, the sort of governance systems and so forth. You might build some in, but then within that constrained space, you leave it open. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another way to address that is one of the things that we're dealing with in our game B socioeconomic political design work uh, is operate at different scales. For instance, if you have a theory about uh, money or governance, you know, try it at the level of a village before you inflict it on the whole world. Right. Uh, I think that I would add that to your EE toolkit. Uh, you know, can you find small scale, low risk experiments that nonetheless will uh, provide confidence on the core principle? Never certainty, of course, because as we know, more is different. Uh, but at least that's one way to you know, get some experience without uh, you know, large scale uh, costs from unpredictable uh, EE type experiments. You know, there's a very interesting idea in biology called, um, and David Krakauer worked on it long ago, and I forget who the main guy is, I'll think of his name in a second, called arena selection. And the idea of arena selection is that the body, for example, will try out certain competitive strategies in an arena within the organism, and then the strategy that wins in this sort of, you know, artificial arena is then sent out to the world. Yeah, good. there's a great example of that in immunology, I know, which is where your... Um, Immune system cells like your B cells are grown in the, the, the bone marrow and tested to see if they recognize the self or not. If they do recognize the self, they're, they're destroyed because you don't want your immune system attacking yourself. And if they don't recognize the self, they're released. And so that's a ex great example of an arena where the body's trying something out before it releases it. And in fact, I think that idea was, uh, Melanie, that's a great point, originally developed in that context. In fact, David might even have written about it. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's another example, too, which close, at least, is the you know pandemic theory of, well, that's interesting, we're using uh, pandemonium theory, sorry, pandemonium theory of cognition, right? Uh, Marvin Minsky, and then it was uh, later uh, extended a little bit by Daniel Dennett, some others. Self Selfridge. Yeah. Yeah. Suffrage originally. You're right. Absolutely. That, you know, that uh, there's competitions in the brain for uh, unconscious thoughts that are essentially competing to become conscious and to, to turn into, uh, you know, perceptual objects or, uh, you know, affordances, etc. So this may be a general pattern that we should be looking at. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Another topic you, that, we, that we alluded to, which we can go into a little bit more detail here is time scales. And you gave uh, a pretty good example. Uh, I sharpened it up a little bit, and I, and I uh, would restate it a little bit uh, by saying, uh, with respect to COVID-19, you know, pandemics happen on relatively short time scales, weeks to months, while normally building hospitals take years. Uh, as you guys suggested, uh, gaining the ability, the planned ability to build hospitals in weeks uh, would be a significant game changer in how we would adapt to pandemics. Yeah, that's absolutely not not just hospitals, but all of the kinds of infrastructure that we're lacking right now. You know, all the all the PPE and the um, when we finally get a vaccine, all the um, you know things that we need to distribute the vaccine, the the glass vials and whatnot. All of that infrastructure takes so long, and that's really the bottleneck. So if we had some way to be more kind of um, nimble, <laughs> to be more ready for many different 
possible scenarios, as Jessica said, you know, we could we could really alleviate some of these problems. Of course, this gets to the fundamental problem of robustness in a capitalist economy. Who pays for it? Uh, you know, uh, things like, for instance, having extra capacity to build glass vials for distributing vaccines. Uh, you know, normally no vaccine company or no vial company has any economic incentive, incentive or receives any economic signal uh, to have extra capacity. It's just a dead weight investment. Uh, which probably, you know, in any time frame that a CEO is worrying about his bonus, i.e. no more than three years, uh, they're not going to do it. Uh, so, it's, you know, when I, again, as I was reading the paper, I three or four times wrote down cost. Who pays for it? Uh, very seldom can you get robustness for free. Uh, any ideas on how we should think about, uh, as a society, uh, setting up a higher order uh, set of signals such that uh, robustness uh, does emerge. So biology has the same problem. This is like your point about incentivizing investment in robustness mechanisms is a huge area of research in biology, how nature does that. Because, you know, this, the same logic applies in, in, in two ways. One, the, often the perturbations are hard to predict or, or, or you haven't experienced them before, so it's hard to build a strategy when that's the case. And the second is, is that if there is a maintenance problem. So even if you have a gene that's say a duplicate and one gene, the gene for which it's a duplicate is destroyed or damaged, um, maintaining that when there's no perturbation given, you know, the, given the costs is hard. And so one, and again, this is an active area of research and there's a lot of controversy around it, but one idea is that um, the way nature solves our genes solve that problem is to have genes with multiple functions. And there, so there's partial overlap in a network of genes instead of just two that are duplicates of each other. And so the, the pressure to sort of diverge is maybe less or the cost that you pay is maybe less. And so we have to think of strategies like that. And I would also add, and we talked about this last time, Jim, and you know maybe in certain communities, this isn't a, a very novel idea, but I don't understand why um, this kind of equipment in the human case ventilator parts, vials, and so forth, can't be 3D printed. So we can develop technology that makes for a more fluid production system. And of course, we don't want to generate a lot of um, garbage. So we want the materials we use in this more fluid production system to be recyclable or biodegradable or something. But that seems like an obvious area, you know, in, in which to invest. As Melanie pointed out earlier, you know, we have these general purpose solutions that apply to a wide variety of scenarios, more fluid production mechanisms is, seems to be one of those. Yeah, that certainly could help, though I always point out I was involved with 3D printing from the very beginning. Uh, and unfortunately, there's material science problems uh, uh, at the intersection of 3D printing and lots of products. I always tell people as an experiment, next time you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, look at your basket when you're checking out and say, how many of those things could have... Uh, been printed on a 3D printer, and the answer is usually not very many of them because the, uh, the you know the materials aspects of what you can actually manipulate in today's 3D printers, at least, uh, doesn't solve an awful lot of problems. Not clear to me, for instance, how you'd print a uh, a mask, for instance. Uh, though in the future they can probably design ones that can do that. So it's certainly an area uh, that would be worth researching and investigating and planning and maybe in investing in. You know, again, social investing. That's maybe what it comes out to in our kind of capitalist society that we have to at a higher level say socially we are going to allocate 10 billion dollars a year to building out the robustness in our systems because no individual business person is going to do it so socially we have to make the decision to do it and of course if we're going to do that we have to have damn good judgment about where to invest that money or again maximize that sort of general purpose yeah flexible response flexible response yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get to a, a final topic here. We're getting a little uh, long here on our time, which is uh, when I think about this and when I hear hear you all write about it and hear other people talk about it, uh, I go, damn, uh, thinking about these complex systems as a human is really hard, as an individual human. Uh, you know, our, our cognitive ability was not evolved to do this, really. We lived in a world that had a certain amount of complexity, but it was relatively stable with occasional switches, as you pointed out, uh, Jessica. Uh, but we're not individually very good at this. 
And if we're going to solve these problems, we got to get good at what you talked about in the paper, which is collective intelligence. What can you both say about what we know about collective intelligence and what we need to learn about collective intelligence if we're going to manage this transition into a high-complexity world that doesn't self-destruct? Well, let's see. I think the first thing, the first remark I want to make is that I suspect a lot of people think we have a better understanding of collective intelligence than we do. I think personally that our understanding is nascent. And um, one of the things that I, I do feel we have sort of got our heads around is that there are two parts to collective intelligence. There are two phases, if you like. There's the information accumulation phase by agents or individuals in the system when they're sort of looking at the environment and trying to figure out what the regularities are, and then they have opinions about that. And then there's the aggregation phase when those opinions are pooled or that information is shared and some collective output is produced. And hopefully it's, you know, it's useful given the environment. And that's when, when, it, when it's useful given the environment is when we say broadly that it's intelligent. Um, but what we don't understand is what the best way to do that aggregation is. And the, the, the current problems we have with our voting systems, the Electoral College and the popular vote are a good example of the challenges of aggregation, information aggregation. In many places, information aggregation is talked about just like that. It's basically a black box. It's black box in markets, how that happens, how prices discovered and so forth. Um, so, you know, totally open set of questions. And I, I think though we can focus our questions a bit For example, if we know that individuals have certain biases in the way they collect information, we might be able to compensate for those by designing algorithms that are sort of, you know, compensate for those weaknesses. Correspondingly, if it is very hard for a system, and this comes up maybe more in biological systems, for um, an algorithm, for a particular algorithm that might be ideal from an, you know, optimization perspective, um, it's hard to evolve that or hard to discover it. We might be able to compensate by building smarter components. So the information that they extract, those components extract from the environment is better. So there's a, we know, I guess the point I'm making is that there's this, we can trade off costs. We can either invest more in the agents so they're smarter and gathering better information, or maybe they're gathering, we're maximizing the differences in the information they gather. That's sort of the diversity point that you sometimes see made in the collective intelligence literature. Or we can, or we can invest in the algorithms for sharing and pooling that, aggr- that information. And, and potentially play those off against each other. So there's a lot, there's a lot to do. And the last point I'll make and, uh, is that we have now a new journal on, on this topic, on collective intelligence, that both Melanie and I are involved in, um, that will be, it, it's, it's, it's in progress now, the launch, the sort of submission, the first, the pa- first papers will be accepted probably in January. But it is, it is dedicated to finding, to the empirical and theoretical foundations of collective intelligence from you know, adaptive matter, physics approaches, all the way through to human organizations and hybrid AI human systems. So really transdisciplinary, dedicated exactly to these kinds of questions so we can improve both understanding in basic science and application. Melanie? Wow, that's hard to follow. I mean, that, you know, that was kind of a theoretical uh, description of collective intelligence, but I think, I, th- I think I'll just say two things. Well, from from more of a personal standpoint, I I think you're right that that we 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 don't easily think in sort of complex systems ways. We're, we're much more linear thinking, even those of us who work in the field. But it's possible to train oneself to to um, think in a slightly different way, to uh, approach these things in our own lives in a slightly different way. And I think that's possible. Um, and I try to do it. I don't always succeed. But I also think that one of the biggest problems we have today for all of these systems is that people who aren't scientists often don't trust science. They don't understand science. They don't know what it is. They don't know how it works. And they don't trust the recommendations that scientists give. And they don't even know how to judge sort of the reliability of what scientists say. We see this like with the whole debate about wearing masks. And that's a huge problem that I hope is something that complex systems will address as to how to get people to better understand what science is and when and how to trust it. Because I think that is one of the biggest roadblocks we have to solving some of these problems. 
Yeah, that's getting to be a damn big problem. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, just the crazy shit you see on the Internet. Uh, you know, with, with some people, 50 percent of Americans are now skeptical about the uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccine. When You know how many Americans have died from vaccine uh, problems since 1950? Take a guess. <laughs> I can't guess. A hundred. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of examples of this mistrust of science that are really impeding our our health and our well-being and our environment. And I see that as one of the biggest problems that scientists themselves have to face. Yeah, let me make two remarks on that and be like, take the other side just a little bit, not anti-science, but add some nuance to this. So the first is that I've been wondering how much fake news and you know mistrust is greater today than in the past. And I've seen some reports indicating, for example, that like the use of propaganda in Rome was astronaut, you know, ancient Rome was astronomical. I'd love to see a study that addresses this question of whether there is an increase because of the internet or other reasons, the increase in, in misinformation or disinformation even. So that's the first point that we should hit on a little bit. And then the second is just, you know, whether there are many issues around vaccines that in addition to death and so forth, and one is just whether they work and how much money goes into, you know, um, producing the vaccine, possibly based on faulty science. And one of the things I do worry about with COVID is because there's so much pressure to produce this vaccine and there's so much financial incentive to be the company that does so that the sun, and we already know that biomedical science suffers from a lot of replication problems and effect size issues you know, we do have to worry about sloppy vaccine production. And so what can we do as a society to incentivize thoroughness there? Yeah, I think that's uh, clearly a good point. And that uh, not only thoroughness, but document the thoroughness and make sure that people understand that the protocols have been followed and that a certain uh, asshole who remained nameless didn't jam the thing through a week before election day. Exactly. Yeah, we need not only good processes, but transparency about the processes uh, so that people have uh, you know, good cause to, to be confident. And I think that would help. Yeah, that would help. Yeah. Melanie's uh, good, point about trust. Yep. A good, good question. It's an interesting one about are we actually in a worse world for uh, fake news and misinformation than we used to be? I hadn't really thought about that. But think back to the 19th century, literally the era of the snake oil salesman. Guy'd come into town on a wagon, uh, you know, selling his, uh, his nostrum that'll cure a long list of diseases. And literally it was snake venom and probably some alcohol. Right? And uh, yeah, people bought it. Uh, you know, the, the, the press in the 19th century was mostly partisan. We didn't even attempt to have uh, nonpartisan newspapers. Typically, uh, all newspapers were associated with one of the political parties or the other and were amazingly vicious. You know, go back to the election of 1800, uh, Thomas Jefferson against John, John Adams and the uh, personal attacks were you know, almost as bad as uh, what we're seeing today, maybe maybe sometimes worse compared to the norms of the of the time. So it's an interesting question. I don't know how you'd get the data on whether our uh, mimetic space is more polluted than that in the past. Yeah. Well, maybe it doesn't matter if it was more polluted in the past or not. It may be because of what we were talking about, that we've now emerged into a world where global complexity are the issues that has to be managed that we, even if we had shitty mimetic uh, hygiene in the past, it may be that we're in a point now where we can't survive that. Maybe that's the real argument. You know, Jim, the other thing that sort of, the other element to this debate that's so important is, is um, humility and analytical skills. So, and th these points apply, you know, as much to, you know, someone's grandmother as they do to some of our very esteemed colleagues. It's amazing to me how much certainty people have about their positions or their solutions that they suggest, or even you know the, the workings of their model scientists, and or people reading about these things. I just I can't I personally to make a you know personal point I personally cannot get my head around it. And I think one of the things we need to do is to you know not just as everyone's been arguing teach more probability in school and 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 you know and the importance of. Uh, informed reasoning and so forth. We also need to teach people that science is fundamentally about uncertainty and, and we need to teach people, it's like a little bit, uh, you know, related to our essay, to, to embrace it. 
right? And, um, and, and to have a little bit more humility. And that applies, like, it's amazing that you can go through your, your coursework all the way through the PhD, through the postdoc, be a professor for years, and you still don't have this humility. You know, you can hear Feynman quotes every day, and you somehow, they still go in one ear and out the other. And I say that's particularly true with when you're dealing with complex systems. Uh, the words I happen to I use a lot is epistemic modesty. Uh, you know, our ability to really predict a complex system, especially if we perturb it in a major way, not all that strong. And people claim that they can, uh, you know, make solid predictions. Uh, one should be skeptical. And as you say, that needs to be somehow uh, part of our baseline education to realize that, uh, particularly with complex systems, you know, uh, uh, that we need to not overclaim and not overbelieve. Absolutely. Melanie, some, any final thoughts? <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I, I totally agree about the humility part. And I think that's really important. But we have to kind of know, we have to know when we don't know something, but we also have to have confidence in some of the things that we do know. And I think that um, it's a wrong message to tell people that all science is uncertain. You know, different amounts of it or different types of it are more certain than other things. And that's something we have to, we have to let people know what they can trust and what they can't. And I think that right now people, a lot of people think you can't trust anything. Yeah, the problem is we don't have any authorities that are respected across the board. You know, it used to be Walter Cronkite said it was true in 1965, then it was probably true for most Americans. But there's, there is no uh, source of authority like that anymore. Yeah, each, each bubble has its own sources of authority. I mean, it's also, though, that, like, you know, as I always tell my students, every paper has errors and, and can be improved. And of course, you want to do your best to not make those errors, but that's just part of science. But where trust comes in or where more authority comes in is over time. It's a collective consensus that develops over time, you know, about some result or um, set of questions. And that's subtle, but, you know, it's, it's that time that, that gives that confidence. And sometimes we have to speed it up, admittedly, like in COVID. But um, that point is, seems to be lost on a lot of people. Like every paper is errors. If we're, involved, if we're living in an epic of exponentially accelerating change, we may not have the time. Do we have the time to convince people uh, that, uh, that anthropomorphic climate change is real? We might not, uh, at least not the, uh, the typical, you know, you know uh, Thomas Kuhnian uh, couple of generations. I don't think we got that kind of time. So we got to find some other way to reach uh, uh, collective intelligence that results in reasonable assumptions about what's going on difficult challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think on that note, I'm going to wrap her up. I think this has been a very interesting conversation. Thanks, Melanie Mitchell and Jessica Flack. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.